all the way back on episode 11 of the podcast, just two months after SSR launched, I brought listeners along for the ride as I experienced my first ever Goosebumps book. I had absolutely no interest in scary things when I was a kid. Honestly, I still don't, and had avoided these blockbuster books even when they were the hottest commodities in my school library back in the 90s. On episode 11, my guests and I discussed the first book in the series, Welcome to Dead House. I was late to the party on that one, and since it's taken me more than two years to cover another one of R.L. Stein's Goosebumps titles on the pod, I guess I'm late to the party again. But better late than never. On episode 128, we turn our attention to what I'm told is one of the most iconic installments in the series, book number seven, Night of the Living Dummy. This book was published in 1993, and introduced the world to a highly creepy ventriloquist dummy named Slappy. Slappy went on to become something of a mascot for the Goosebumps franchise, showing up again and again in future books as well as the Goosebumps TV series and the 2015 movie adaptation. In Night of the Living Dummy, a tween girl named Lindy finds Slappy at a construction site near her house and quickly develops her talents as a ventriloquist. This causes things to get pretty tense with Lindy's twin sister, Chris. These two are highly competitive, and actually pretty terrible to each other, and Chris becomes jealous when she sees that Lindy's ventriloquist act has made her suddenly cooler and more popular at school. Luckily for Chris, their dad finds another ventriloquist dummy named Mr. Wood at a pawn shop. Everyone should be happy, right? Not so much. Weird, scary things start happening around the house, and it's unclear to Chris and readers who is really behind them. On this episode, my guests and I take quite the deep dive into all things ventriloquism. I have quite literally never said that word so much in my life. We discuss why people find dummies so scary and why Slappy has become such a pop culture icon. We chat about how R.L. Stein portrayed twins in Night of the Living Dummy and how it was so much darker than any other twin portrayal I have ever seen in the media. We consider the instances of gaslighting that we see happening among the characters in this book. We also talk about why kids love to be scared, why disengaged parents are so key to children's horror, and whether or not we, as pop culture podcasters, would be the first or last killed in a horror film. As a reminder, listeners, we are currently in the middle of the third annual Manuary on the podcast. We typically feature women as guests on the pod, but I love mixing things up for the first month of the year. With that in mind, I'm excited to welcome David Luzader to the show for episode 128. David is an improv comic, longtime podcaster, and the winner of America's Next Top Podcaster Season 2. His two current podcasts are Hit Me One More Time and Movie Go Round. Follow David on Twitter at Dave Luz. If you're not already, please follow SSR on social media too. We are at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast or The SSR Podcast Community. If you love the podcast and are feeling inspired to help me spread the word about it, social media is a great way to do it especially Instagram stories. Take a screenshot of this episode, post it to your story, and tag SSR Pod so I can see. Maybe even add a comment about whether or not you read Goosebumps when you were a kid. You can also help spread the SSR love by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes. All of your favorite podcasters ask this of you on every episode because it really does matter. I promise that leaving a rating and or review only takes a few moments, and it goes such a long way as I work to grow the show in 2021 and beyond. Another great way to help SSR grow? Joining the Patreon family. You can come on board for as little as a dollar per month, and at every sponsorship tier, there are more exclusive rewards up for grabs. I'm a one-woman show over here, so I really appreciate the support of all of my Patreon sponsors tuning into this episode. 
Patreon rewards include bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, SSR merch, input on book selection, weekly voice notes, and more. And our first ever Patreon party is happening this coming Thursday, January 14th. I would love to see you there. For more details, visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. If you want to read more audiobooks in 2021, you should absolutely explore Libro FM. Libro FM gives you the chance to support independent bookstores, even when shopping for the same audiobooks you can buy from bigger corporations. They're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Happy listening. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, David. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having me. So we met for the first time when I recorded an episode of your podcast two or three months ago now. Hit me one more time. And I had so much fun talking with you and your co-host. And I think all the way back then, I was like, I need to have you back on for Manuary. So I have been looking forward to talking with you again. And I am ready to have you along to talk me through another Goosebumps book. So let's start with you telling me a little bit about why you wanted to go in the Goosebumps direction. So Goosebumps is one of those book series that was just such a big part of my childhood. And I realized reading this one and kind of looking through some different titles, it was a part of my childhood in the sense that it, I remember it a lot and I read a lot of the books, but I can't tell you much about most of them, um, except for a couple very in particular, you know, Slappy, who was a character in this book we'll talk about. And there's another one about a haunted mask that terrified me as a child. But in general, I don't remember anything except enjoying them and buying them at Scholastic Book Fairs, um, yep. along with Animorphs books. Those were kind of my two big go-tos. So now that I was the 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 shoe was on the other foot, as it were, where I kind of got to pick a book. I was like, okay, let's go with something that I remember having fond memories for, but maybe don't remember crystal clear and see now what does that look like? Well, you know, R.L. Stein is this very prolific writer. He is a, a very successful writer. What was that magic? Why did I love it so much as a kid? And what is it, how does it hit me now as a 32-year-old? Yeah, these are all good questions, um, and I'm excited to talk them through with you. So listeners, if you've been around with SSR since the very beginning, I did an episode about Goosebumps probably within the first two or three months of the show, all the way back in 2018, and I had never read a Goosebumps book when I recorded that episode. So I came into the experience with really nothing to go on except for the fact that I had actively avoided all these goosebumps when I was a kid. And we read the first book in the series, which is called Welcome to Dead House. And I remember like not 
not loving it. Um, I remember that what I really enjoyed was the conversation because my guest for that episode was somebody who had really fond memories of the series. And I think this is one of those series where it's really, it sort of like lights you up to listen to somebody who has fond memories of it. Talk about it because like you said, it does become such an integral part of someone's childhood and like somebody's interaction with different kinds of pop culture going forward. So um, yeah, I mean, this is now the second Goosebumps book that I've ever read as a 30 year old. And um, I know this one is like one of the iconic books in the series. It was number seven in the publishing order, but it's really like up there, I would say in the top five of like the most iconic titles. Is that why you wanted to do Night of the Living Dummy specifically? Yeah. Also because I I just remember Slappy, who is the dummy that is introduced in this book. And really like, I would have thought that because Slappy is so, Slappy is synonymous with Goosebumps. Yeah. He is kind of the thing that everybody knows and remembers. Um, I even watched the Goosebumps movie when that came out a number of years ago. And Slappy is kind of the main antagonist. He is a big part of Goosebumps. And so I was actually pretty surprised reading this that he was such a minor character and really kind of had his big reveal at the end. He has a couple more books. I think there's two sequels to this one. And then there's just a couple other books where Slappy kind of reappears. But also part of the reason I wanted to read this is I'm not scared of ventriloquist dummies. I know a lot of people are. I get it. Their lifeless eyes are a little bit unnerving. If I was locked in a room with one for hours, like maybe it would start getting to me a little bit but I've never really been scared of them. Yeah. But every single dummy that I see, my brain just goes, oh, that's Slappy. Like that is what I'm comparing it to every single time. In Toy Story 4, there are some ventriloquist dummies. And just anytime they're on screen, I'm like, yep, that's Slappy. That's the, just like every dummy in my head now, especially ones in tuxedos, that's, that's Slappy. It's so interesting that you say that because the general focus on ventriloquism in this book it, so it was it was so weird and so confusing to me. And I I guess I've never thought about ventriloquist dummies enough to determine if I'm afraid of them. Like mm-hmm. the fact that you just said like you're not afraid of them. I'm like, am I? Like I don't know that I've ever thought about it for long enough. And maybe it's because I was not exposed to Slappy as a kid. Cause I can imagine that if you grow up as a goosebumps kid and you do become attached to this living dummy saga as you mentioned there's three titles in the night of the living dummy saga and then he appears in all of these other installments of the goosebumps series then maybe you have a different kind of association with ventriloquism my primary association with ventriloquism is the movie best in show i don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with that yes it's one of my favorite movies of all time and uh if you haven't watched it listeners please go ahead and watch it so that we can be best friends forever but one of the characters who's at the dog show he's showing this like big bloodhound he also happens to have a ventriloquist a ventri- yeah i guess it's a ventriloquist dummy i, I don't even know the languages around these things he has a dummy he is a ventriloquist or an aspiring one and that's what i think of when i think of ventriloquism not slappy and not anything scary yeah the only big ventriloquist act and i'm sure like back on the ed sullivan days they probably had some ventriloquists on but the only one i can think of is jeff dunham which we're not going to go down that road but like you said in this book it was so funny to me that everybody is so interested in ventriloquism these two 
like preteen girls get super into it and everybody they talk to is like, oh, you do ventriloquism? That's so cool. I'm going to hire you for a party. You're going to be the MC at our big school event. It was comical to me in a way that I don't think it was meant to be at all. I echo that. It made me sort of uncomfortable because I was trying to put myself in the shoes of one of the kids who might go to this school with Chris and Lindy, the aspiring ventriloquists. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking like, no matter what scenario I would observe these girls performing ventriloquism in, I think I like wouldn't know what to do with my hands because this (laughs) is just not something that is normal. And listeners, if you are a ventriloquist, side note, everyone, it's a hard word to say. And David and I are saying it a lot. So if it sounds weird, if I'm tripping over it, I'm sorry. If you are a ventriloquist, if you have a loved one who is a ventriloquist, I'm not throwing any shade at ventriloquism whatsoever, but it's not something that I grew up exposed to. And I don't think it's something that many children, at least like on a contemporary basis, are sort of like directed into as a hobby. And it's just interesting in this book because it's it's sort of treated with the same like I don't know. It feels almost like they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing that you do this. Like there's this sense of it's like sacred to these kids. And I, it's weird to me for any activity to be treated with that sort of regard in a middle school. Yeah. And ventriloquism's a craft. As you yeah. said, we're not throwing shit at ventriloquism. Absolutely. No. It's hard. It, I, I can't do it. I've I've attempted because there was also an episode of the TV show, Doug, where he got really into ventriloquism. And I think that also inspired me to try. I can't do it, nor do I have the patience to do it. But Lindy is apparently this prolific, amazing ventriloquist artist. Uh, yeah. Ventriloquist, I guess would be the word. And yeah, everyone loves her act. This is one thing to where I don't want to throw any shade at R.L. Stein. I have a couple of points here that I actually want to point out that I, I quite enjoyed. But whenever he talks about their act, he's like, everybody thought Lindy was so funny. They were like turning red in the face. And, and like, but there's no talk about what her act is about, what the yeah. jokes are. I guess it's kind of a cheat of like, well, now I don't have to write in really funny <laughs> stuff because I can yeah. just say everybody thought it was really funny. And I know it's a it's a kid's book, but there's still that adage of show don't tell came to mind a few times, especially when he was describing the acts. Yeah, I had that response as well. I think I felt that way about a lot of aspects of these two main characters. So listeners, if you aren't familiar with this book, the focus is, of course, on the dummies, but also on these twins, Chris and Lindy. And I want to talk about their relationship because I thought it was really interesting and unlike any portrayal of twins or really siblings that I've ever experienced. But... I found that we really learned very little about these twins beyond the fact that they just seem to hate each other and that they're both so intensely competitive. There was one moment, and I don't even remember what the takeaway was, but there was one moment maybe two-thirds of the way through the book where as I was reviewing my notes before we jumped on today, I had written in the margins like, oh good, like finally some character details. Because all that we were reading about them was quite frankly, how mean they are. And so I, I agree. Like, I think there were a lot of details that were missing for me. And I do remember in the first book, Welcome to Dead House, there was a little bit more like character development. And as you said, David, these are books written for kids. And I know that R.L. Stein feels and has felt forever and has spoken out about how his books are really intended to encourage kids to read. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really all he cares about. And I love that mission. I respect that that's his number one priority, but it is hard as an adult reader who's trying to fill in some of those gaps to miss out on 
the character details for me. And and I think to your point, like, what does the act actually look like? Because if people are paying you to go perform at their children's birthday parties, and you just picked up ventriloquism like three minutes ago, and then if you're being like recruited to be the MC at the school concert, I believe that you're good, but just like show me how good you are. Right, right, exactly. And you're right. We don't get a lot about their relationship aside from they're fiercely competitive in all things and they're very often fighting one another for kind of a attention just in general. One thing that stuck out to me in a huge way, and, and I don't know if it was maybe the same moment, but it's when Lindy revealed that she had been doing all of these elaborate pranks on Chris, these horribly mean pranks. Yeah. They were making Chris kind of feel crazy and getting her parents really upset. And she just has this moment where it's like, haha, I got you. And by the time that she's done that, there's no way that their parents are going to believe Chris saying that Lindy did it because they're so mad about these puppets. And I was just kind of like guffawed by that moment in the book that this small well, not small child, but this still like, you know, middle schooler was so devious and so conniving and so like evil in kind of a way. Mr. Wood, the puppet that comes to life. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to say she's more evil than him because he does do attempted dog murder. And that was really dark. Yeah. We can't Uh, stand for that here. No, no, not a fan of that. But other than that, he was just kind of like, ah, you're my slaves now. And she's the one who's really, who did everything kind of quote unquote evil throughout the books of ruining her clothes and ruining the kitchen and, you know, messing with her sister's head. It was kind of twisted, honestly. Yeah, there was some serious gaslighting going yes. on. Like that's the word that kept coming to me was that Lindy was gaslighting Chris for most of the book, trying to make Chris believe, first of all, that she was worse than her sister and then trying to make her feel crazy for feeling that way and then trying to make her feel crazy for reacting to what was going on with Mr. Wood, who Chris believed seemed to be like coming to life and doing all these terrible things. And then Lindy sort of continuing to engineer that so that Chris would then just grow more and more upset. And then I sort of felt like I was being gaslit. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because it's the first time I read the book. So I didn't necessarily know what I was supposed to believe about like, whether Mr. Wood was actually doing some of these things, or if it was Lindy the whole time. But I still feel like I don't really know like who was responsible for some of the things that went on in the book. And I, I guess that's sort of a credit to R.L. Stein's writing to some degree, because I, I wasn't sure. But it is such an example of gaslighting. And, and kids don't have a word for that. And I certainly didn't when I was a kid in the 90s. That's a word that we've really started to apply now. But I, I kept thinking about this concept of gaslighting as I was getting to know these sisters. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. It is textbook gaslighting. It is making Chris feel crazy, making the people around her not trust her to a degree where she, she feels crazy. I didn't see it coming. Actually, it was it was a pretty good twist. I got to be honest, because when she turns around, it's like, I've been doing all of this. And there was part of me that was like, oh, is is the dummy like infecting her mind and making her do? Nope. It just turns out that uh, Lindy is kind of a jerk and really wants to to make her sister suffer. Yeah, I think that the sibling relationship in this book was super interesting. And I I think that especially like thinking about my childhood growing up as a tween girl in the 90s and the early aughts, the examples that I had of twins, it was very different. Like we're talking about Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. We're talking about 
the parent trap. We're talking about all of these sort of like shining examples of like how fun it is to have a twin sister. And like, that was all that I wanted growing up. I wanted to be a twin so badly. And a lot of other people who I've talked to on the show, especially when we've covered titles like Sweet Valley High, that was a common thread. And so I think it's really interesting that R.L. Stein chose to go this route. And I wonder if there was some intentionality behind it where like, he's like, oh, all of these girls are getting so obsessed with twins, but I'm going to make them feel like it's a terrible thing to be because I do think he sort of turned this idea of having an identical version of you on its head, right? Because it's like, this is the dark side. Yeah, you can share clothes and you can switch places and, you know, trick your crush and go on adventures if you're Mary-Kate Ashley Olsen internationally and solve <laughs> mysteries. But you also might experience this like deep longing to be better than the other or this need to compete for your parents' love and attention. And obviously it's exaggerated, but I just thought that that was an interesting take on something that I know I grew up seeing a lot. Yeah, I went to school with a pair of twins, uh, Drew and Darren. I won't reveal their last names, but uh, Drew and Darren were in my middle school. They were like the twins. And I think, um, and maybe it's maybe it's different for guys. I don't know. I haven't done a sample on this. So I, I don't think I ever really grew up with that same desire for twins but then again boy twins weren't really ever a focus in any sort of media yeah um, we didn't have brother brother that wasn't a, a show <laughs> but also seeing them growing up and seeing kind of the focus that was on them too because it was a novelty that they were twins right and i'm sure there's some decent aspects of that attention but also everyone knows who you are because you're the twins and so if there's any drama around you it kind of like gets around because no matter how big your school is if there's just like one set of twins everyone's gonna know who you are and i i think that would be a little bit of unwanted attention perhaps yeah i think that's true we actually weirdly in my high school and i went to a really big high school at the same time we had two sets of triplets what? at my high school isn't that crazy that's really crazy and both sets of triplets were all girls. And there was one set of triplets in my grade. And I know there are a few people who I went to high school with who listened to this show. And they were all like, of course, so smart. And they were all really good athletes. And I have to wonder now, like, I'm sure some of that was genetic. But I also wonder if part of it was that they all became so successful because they were competing with each other because they wanted to like go to the best college and do the best at sports and be the most popular. And they were all of those things. But I just, this portrayal of twins made me really sad. Like they were so evil to each other because even beyond just like the twin level, even as siblings, like this is a really dark look at what it's like to share your life and your home and your childhood with somebody. And yes, we've all seen examples of siblings who are enemies in in pop culture. Like this is nothing new, but this just felt so sinister. Like the fact that they were taking their hatred of each other to like a level of ventriloquism, like my dummy is better than yours and I'm going to be more famous than you at ventriloquism. And like your, your dummy is ugly. And then layering that on with this, like just this nasty way of talking to their parents about the other twin. It really threw me off in a way that I didn't expect. Yeah. There's another layer too, that's never explicitly said, but it's, it's written about is that they're a poor family yeah. or at least they're a family that is they're, they're stretched. Then they talk about the mom talks about, we can't spare an inch 
and they talk about like the thin carpet of of parts of the house and uh, the dad gets the dummy from a pawn shop and you know like a normal one would be too expensive because they cost upwards of like a hundred dollars so you know he found this one that he got a deal on that's that's really great and i think we're, we're probably adding all these layers that maybe rl stein had intended but they certainly come through in his work where there are there's this yeah, set of girls who are constantly competing because they're twins and on top of that, they don't have a lot of money, so they probably don't get to do a whole lot of things. So that probably makes it even harder to kind of create your own identity. Mm. Um, I know one of them it's talked about has sort of like a junk jewelry collection. That's kind of the, I think it's Chris. And that's really one of the only things we really get about her character that separates her from her sister, aside from being not as good at, at ventriloquism. And being nicer and less, right. Right, and less, less of a gaslighter. Right, exactly, exactly. Also g- good qualities. Uh, don't don't gaslight people. I don't think we need to say that, but just in case I do. And it just is interesting to now kind of discuss it and break it down of these were all kind of thoughts that I had, but now realizing like, yeah, it, it, it would be even harder to differentiate yourself if you're stuck in a cycle where it's like they have to share everything because they don't probably have a lot of money for clothes. So they're, they're going to share stuff back and forth. And it's easier for you to just to have the exact same experience rather than spending money on the two of you doing all your own things you know it's it's a lot easier if both of you play softball because then we just have to do softball things and not have to pay money for basketball at the same time yeah at one point lindy says to chris you always copy everything i do why don't you find something of your own for once go upstairs and work on your junk jewelry collection that's your hobby let me be the ventriloquist which i think captures a lot of what you just said and i did I did resonate with that a little bit. And I think that there's like a flavor of that, that almost anybody who grew up with a sibling can relate to, especially if you're an older sibling as I am. And I grew up with younger sisters who always wanted to do what I was doing and always were like trying to explore the things that I was into and always were sort of parroting everything that I had to say in front of our parents. And I was just like, let me be me. Like, please. Like, first of all, I'm older than you. Like, I got here first and I did all these things first. And it can be frustrating because I do think that when you're growing up, there is this natural urge to like want to decide who you are and to like show that to the people you care about. And especially I think like when your parents are around, you want them to like see you as an individual. So I did relate to Lindy's frustration to a point. And I think your note about their socioeconomic status is a good one. And it's something that I noted throughout as well. And I think we see it in a lot of the way that the parents interact with each other and with the children. Like, it's clear that these parents are under a lot of stress. They're not around a lot. I think they're working a lot. They're really just trying to make ends meet. And also, um, the girls have this fixation with the house that's going up next door or like across the street, which I thought was sort of interesting that like, this is a big event that they have their eye on what's happening at this construction site. And it made me wonder like, you know, what state is their house in watching this brand new house be built is such like a banner moment for them. And yeah, I think that it just, it seems to me that these girls have grown up in a lot of stress. Like there's a lot going on. They have a lot of pressure to do better than the other, to distinguish themselves, maybe to impress their parents so that when their parents are home and not working, their parents can just like enjoy them. And yeah, it was just, there were a lot of interesting family dynamics. And this is of course, like the place that I go to on the podcast when in fact, a seven or eight year old reading this book is just like, dummies, this is so crazy. (sighs) But that's why we're here. That's why we as adults are here to dig into these books on SSR. Yeah, I think kids also maybe unconsciously pick up on some of the the parent stuff as well, because 
I mean, all of our parents at some point are just like, okay, geez, like I need five minutes. And, you know, you can really feel how often these girls must fight because as soon as stuff starts getting rough with the dummies, the mom is just done with it. She doesn't want to hear about it. She doesn't want them even like she would get rid of them in a second if she could and, and sort of even tries. And the dad is supportive. And, you know, there's the loving there of where he went and he got the other dummy for Chris. So obviously, like they they're doing the best of what they have with they're doing the best they can with what they have. I swear I talk regularly on other shows, but I, I really just really notice the parents reaction to the girls and, and maybe kids wouldn't notice it explicitly but i think it's something that they could maybe relate to a little bit and that's also that's also a common thing with goosebumps and that's a common thing with horror movies right like i think i heard somebody say you know if if the police were competent at their jobs in horror movies then horror movies wouldn't happen like they have to not believe what's going on if they believed instantly my dummy is talking and he's doing little <laughs> things and they're like okay let's yeah. get rid of it right now story over there has to be a sense of you're crazy, you're wrong, these things aren't happening, so they can then continue to happen. And one thing I always appreciate, too, with Goosebumps is that the kids are always the one that uh, that solve the problem or save the day. It's They don't rarely ever have parents sweep in and take care of everything. And I think that is part of their success as well. And part of maybe an important thing about them as well, why kids like them so much is because they get, they can see these things happening to them in a way they can relate to it more of like, I'm a little kid who's really interested in the house going up next door, but also they get to see themselves be the hero. I mean, in this point, it's almost getting run over by a steamroller, which is terrifying. And having the steamroller driver think he ran over a child. There are some really dark things in this book. It, it got dark. I was going to say it got dark at the end, but it was really dark for most of the story. And to your point about the parents, I do, if I'm not mistaken, I do remember that being a big topic of conversation in the first Goosebumps episode that we did um, because, like I said, that was the first Goosebumps book I had ever read. And so the way that R.L. Stein approached parents in that book was, it was different for me. And I, I think that the parents in that book are sort of equally disengaged. They too, like, don't believe what the kids are saying about what's going on. There's this sense of incompetency a little bit. And uh, I remember reading in preparation for that episode that that is one of R.L. Stein's hallmarks with Goosebumps is that like, he wants kids to see adults as being so out of touch and being a little bit bumbling and incompetent. And it's funny because the book that we read to discuss on your podcast, Hit Me One More Time, we talked about Mr. Popper's Penguins, and I'll link that episode in the show notes. But in that book, the kids were sort of props. And um, we talked about that a lot, like how it was sort of a bummer that Mr. Popper has these kids that like don't really play into the story at all. And yet we still have these adults that are kind of idiotic and like were annoying to us in different kinds of ways. And in this book, it's the kids who are really taking center stage and the parents who have no idea what's going on. The parents in this one actually like really bugged me though. They were, they were really mean. And the mom at one point even says like, these dummies have better personalities yeah. than you, <laughs> which I can see like if you're a kid and maybe people who have a different person, a different sense of humor than I do might think that that's funny. But I was like, hey, that's so mean. No wonder these girls have anger problems. Like this is how their parents talk to them. Yeah, I felt that a little bit as well. 
where it, it may be in it, it's obviously a work of fiction but it's written to kind of an extreme to allow that separation for the kids to be the heroes because no matter what these parents aren't going to believe them because like you said the parents are well, they're they're not inclined to believe their children they are i mean mr mr powell i believe that was their last name right was yes. powell mm-hmm. he's a little more affable but he's also written kind of in the same way as we talked about mr popper's penguins where he's just kind of disengaged from the family he's on the road he gets back and you know the mom fills him in and he's always going to take the mom's side on things there's never a disagreement with them as far as our kids are little terrors and they the, the second that they make us mad like that's it they're they're we're done with them i forgot about the mr popper's penguins where the kids i mean he abandons his kids at the end essentially yeah. uh, but no that is a is a funny point about the parents in here where on upon reflection there were a few times where i was like oh geez that's a harsh thing to say to your kid yeah, I mean, it's like, that's cold. And I I do think that there's sort of, um, there's something refreshing about reading about parents who are so like vulnerable and honest with their emotions. And I don't, I don't have kids, but there were moments where I, in reading this book was like, oh yeah, I would probably react like that too. Like if I were to come downstairs and find that my whole kitchen had been destroyed and my twin daughters were were just bickering at each other and they're talking about these ventriloquist dummies that I didn't want them to have in the first place. And again, my house is trashed. I too would probably be like, fuck this. What is wrong with you? Like what happened to these children that I was trying to raise? Fix this or like get out. Like what what is going on in my house? So I do think it's kind of nice to see a portrayal of a family that's not like so picture perfect mm-hmm. and not a mom who's like, oh, it's okay, sweeties. Like, let's sit down and talk about this because that's not real life. Like, that's not how my parents would react if something at this level happened in our house growing up. So I, I think there is a balance to be found there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he swings a little bit too far the other way of the parents are borderline to sometimes actually being mean. But I did feel for the mom when she came down and found the scene as you described the the fridge is is torn open there's food everywhere there's a the dummy that's been the point of pain in this household for the last week two weeks just right there in the middle of all of it and yeah your two daughters are there insisting the dummy did it you know obviously in the world of goosebumps we as the reader know okay crazy things are happening but the suspension of disbelief is supposed to be that this is the real world. Nothing really crazy has happened up to this point. And there's like a further backstory for these dummies. So something had happened. But in the general everyday life of, of people, dummies aren't walking around. Houses aren't trying to eat you. I'm pretty sure aliens show up at some times. You know, you're just going about your life and then these things sort of happen. They also, this is also the vacuum of horror movies and stuff like this, where there's not really any literature or TV shows or movies where these things happen because everybody always reacts as if this is the first time this has ever happened. Like every zombie story, everybody's like, they're coming back from the dead and they're biting people. This is what, what's happening. It's like, you haven't seen the 10 million movies where these things happen. These, these happens in worlds where those things, I guess, I mean, maybe they are fiction, but they're not maybe discussed to the point that we all discuss them in this reality. What I'm saying is that podcasts don't exist in these books. People like you and I who fixate on exactly. these kinds of things, nobody's met us. 
in yeah. the world of horror pop culture. And if there if there is somebody, they're always the weirdo, right? The one that knows what's going on, especially in kid stuff, is like, ah, oh, they're the they're the weird kid, but they end up having all not in this book necessarily, but I've definitely read other ones where it's like, that's the kid that knows what's going on with this crazy thing, but in everyday life, they're the weirdo. Yeah, you and I are the weird neighbor um, at the end of the street, and we're also probably the person that gets killed first. Yeah, I uh, I was definitely the, yeah, I would definitely be the one that's like, beware, but then would get myself in the middle of trouble. I, oh, I remember there was another show, because uh, I really like the Goosebumps show, but there was one, Are You Afraid of the Dark? It's oh, I remember that. Yeah, it's funny that I don't dig into horror as much as I did when I was a kid, apparently. But I remember there was this, uh, weird magic shop owner who showed up in a lot of episodes who just kind of was like this through line and would often give the kids the thing that would end up causing them trouble later. And it's probably bad that the older I get, the more I'm like, I get that guy. I understand him now because that's who I would be in these scenarios. You're like, that movie wouldn't be such a bad life. Like I could have, I could have done that. I mean, nothing really bad ever happened to him, <laughs> you know? He made out okay. The gatekeeper, that's the name of the trope. The gatekeeper who is the person that's like, don't go on that hill. Nothing bad ever happens to them. They're just viewed as crazy and then end up being right, which I can only hope that that ends up being my life story. I hope that for you. Um, I, I Actually, I was going to ask out of curiosity if you were into other horror-related pop culture when you were a kid and if it's something that you have continued to be into as an adult, but it sounds like you've sort of grown out of it. Um, I think I was really into it as a kid and I, and I loved kind of that spooky fun feeling of stuff like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark and then turned into a chicken. Not literally, I mean, in the metaphorical sense of <laughs> everything frightened me when I was late teens, kind of into my early 20s, would be happy to watch horror movies with a lot of friends so I didn't have to expose myself to the real terror. And now in the last maybe five to 10 years, really kind of started to come back on it. But I, I guess I'm a little bit of like a hipster with horror where I don't just want the jump scares. I don't just want the the weird creature flick. Like I kind of like stuff that's a little bit different and a little bit more, sometimes more fun, but just, I guess maybe kind of the Jordan Peele stuff that's going on now. But some of that I think is a little bit up its own butt. I'm just saying us was a little bit up its own butt. And I think it recognizes that. All this to say, yes and no. Okay, well, this might be, this this question might be hard to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have any sense or memory of like why you were into being scared or into spooky things when you were a kid? Because I was so not into being scared and spooky things when I was a kid. And I think this is something that we've talked about on other episodes where we've discussed scary books, including the first Goosebumps episode. I do think it's like an interesting thing because I think that, I think that the, proportion of people who are interested in horror and in being scared it's much higher when you're younger like I think if we were to do some sort of a poll like how many kids read goosebumps versus how many adults go on to read horror and to like consume every horror movie that comes out I think you would definitely see a decline I certainly know a lot of people like if I'm just sort of speaking anecdotally I know a lot of people in my life who loved 
the Goosebumps books when they were growing up. And I don't think I've ever heard them talk about reading, watching horror content now as adults. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts, especially, you know, in your capacity as a pop culture commentator yourself, what do you what do you think happens there? Like, why are kids so into it in a way that adults aren't necessarily always? Uh, I think, I mean, isn't it fun to always be a little bit scared? You know, that's that cheesy thing that, that people like to say. I think there is that little bit of like adrenaline to it, though. I think that is really, really is part of it. There is kind of something fun about it. But I think also as a kid, your your imagination is much different. And I think your sense of security is a lot different, too, because there are touchstones when you're a kid of things that make you feel safe. It's it's your parents, it's being under your covers, it's your family kind of in, in general, your home, your room, you know, whatever it is, you, you have something you can go cling to. And those are the things that are going to protect you. I think as adults, we get a little bit more jaded kind of in general. And uh, the things that start to scare us are the inevitability of death, uh, maybe more so than a ventriloquist dummies. Right. Uh, I think it really is. It's in my very short analysis of all of this, and I think that's a good observation where there's a lot of kids are super into it, but it doesn't always translate into Stephen King readers. So there are plenty of them because obviously that guy sells millions of books. He does okay. He's fine. Yeah, he's, he's doing all right. But I think I, I, I think this kind of applies. I, I'm thinking of the movie It, and there's, there's It 1 and It Chapter 2. And I think in it one, I enjoyed it a lot better because that was digging in a little bit more into the psychology and, and really made it, made it kind of creepy. I think as an adult, that's what kind of intrigues me more of horror is the psychological aspect. Um, and also, what's funny, I was just saying, you know, kids, as little kids, feel safer a lot of the time. But I think in horror movies, kids feel more vulnerable versus like It Chapter 2, which was a lot of CGI monsters jumping out trying to scare you. And that's just not interesting. I think horror for kids with stuff like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark are these stories in which kids can see themselves in and kids kind of get to be the hero, but also is a little bit spooky and fun where they get to go feel safe at the end. And horror for adults is like, ah, aren't you scared this guy stabbed that person? Right. No. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. And I, I really was trying as I read this book to put myself in the mindset of a kid who is at sort of the appropriate age to read this book, um, Night of the Living Dummy. And I'm not trying to sound difficult. And maybe it's just because, like I said, I have no real like skin in the game as far as ventriloquist dummies are concerned. I could not bring myself to a place where I was afraid. <laughs> and that was not my experience with Welcome to Dead House. I, I thought Welcome to Dead House was scary. It, it creeped me out, like, because there were ghost kids and this sort of question of who's alive and who's dead. And it was very disturbing. I mean, even though I had to suspend some disbelief because I'm an adult reading a book meant for elementary schoolers, I could, I could find that place where it was scary. And I couldn't get there with Night of the Living Dummy, which I thought was interesting because even as I was looking at blogs and reviews of the book now, like, so many people, even who have read it for the first time as adults, were like, oh, this is, I still think that this is scary because I've always been afraid of a dummy coming to life. <laughs> um, which again, maybe it's just like a personal thing. Maybe it's like a blind spot in my own like pop culture consumption that this just isn't something that I 
was ever taught to be afraid of. But I, I'm just going to say it. I couldn't, I couldn't find the fear. And as somebody who I don't watch any horror movies, like ask me if I've seen pretty much any like touchstone horror film. I have not. The answer is no. You don't have to ask me because the answer is no, because I'm too scared. And this, I was like, LOL, like a dummy. This is so, this is so not scary to me. So I don't know. And maybe it was because I kept picturing them as, I, I kept picturing both the dummies looking like Woody from Toy Story. <laughs> I, I was gonna bring up that that dummies are a little bit exotic in that way of how many dummies do you come across in your everyday life? And I, yeah. I was gonna ask you if maybe you thought maybe that's a factor because even if this was as scary as it could be, it could make a dummy as terrifying as possible. It's like how often are you gonna then walk down the street and see a dummy? Pretty much never. Do you think that might be like a little bit factor for you of why this isn't scary because there's no point in your life that dummies are part of it? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, if I really like try to focus in and picture like what the most terrifying, creepy ventriloquist dummy might look like, like m- maybe I can just get there. But there's, there's so many other things I encounter in my daily life, less now since I rarely leave my house. But <laughs> generally speaking, there's so many things that I could encounter in my daily life that could perhaps take on a scary spin that I'm like, I, I don't have the emotional energy to conjure up what this might look like. Mm-hmm. Now, if I got in my car and a ventriloquist dummy was just like in the passenger seat, I'd probably, mm-hmm. oh, you know, that'd yeah. be like a moment of like, oh, but I'm going to assume someone put it there. And why, why did somebody bring a dummy into my car? I think it's funny because I think for the pair of us, it is a little bit of that, like that's so removed. We had that whole conversation of ventriloquism. Who's really into that? But maybe other people are frequenting clubs that we don't know about where it's just, you know, it's dummy night every single night, come down, you know, buy, buy a dummy, get one free. Yeah. I mean, listeners, if you, if you have more of like an understanding of a context for ventriloquist dummies, dummies in general, if you are a ventriloquist and this hit you in a different spot, I think we both would be curious to know about it. Please send me an email, hellossrpod at gmail.com. David, I will be sure to share any stories with you. Come over and comment on Instagram at ssrpod. But I just think I'm maybe I'm the wrong audience for this one. Which is so funny. Maybe it is because this was one that yeah, I don't deal with dummies pretty much ever. And this was maybe like the biggest dummy in my life because I'd, I'd read these books as a kid. Maybe that's why now every dummy I see, I'm like, oh, that's slappy, or I associate with slappy, not in like a terrified way, but it is just in my brain, ventriloquist dummy equals slappy. So it's funny then to be saying like, I'm not scared of him, but (laughs) he's all I can think about when I think about ventriloquism. Well, and I also wonder if part of it for me was the hype because I had read online like that this was in the, you know, definitive list of the scariest books in the Goosebump series. This was number two or number three. And a few of my friends were like, oh shit, that book scared me so much. And so I was like primed and ready. Like I made sure to set aside time that wasn't right before I went to bed to read it. And then I read it and I was like, oh, I mean, I'm scared of everything and this is fine. And I was actually feeling pretty good about myself because it didn't freak me out the way I expected it to. But yeah, maybe this is a case of like, 
the hype was good for me because it I didn't end up being afraid. Um, and again, maybe it's just because I'm 30 years old. <laughs> Might be a factor. I I wonder now because the other one I was considering was the haunted mask, and you know maybe one day we'll we'll get a chance to discuss that. But that's one. That's when I do remember terrifying me. That's when like a kid gets a Halloween mask stuck onto their face. And yeah, I see people can't see Allie's face, but she's definitely making a face of like, that would be terrifying. Yeah, to I don't think I would do well with that and, one. And I had, I had that mask. Oh, uh, you, had so the, you had the merch. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was, you know, the TV show came out and that was a big deal and they did a big episode with that. And so they then sold the mask. Um, and I had that and you know, for some weird reason, even though it, it terrified me, but I think that like plays into it a little bit, right? Like that it's kind of fun to be scared. Yeah. Element of it. Yeah. I, you mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation. As we start to wind down, I just wanted to mention it again that Slappy himself actually does not play a huge role in this Ooh. book, which surprised me given all of, again, the hype that I heard about Slappy. Because Mr. Wood, who is Chris's dummy, is actually sort of the one causing all of the mischief. And then Slappy shows up at the end, having been brought to life. And I assume because there are these two additional books in this saga about the living dummy, that's sort of where we get a lot of the Slappy storyline. I assume that you read the others. Is that how you remember it? Yeah, I remembered in my head Slappy being the dummy. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to me to read this because it's been so very long that I'm, I'm sure I read Night of the Living Dummy kind of way back when that he doesn't really ever play a part in it. He's there at the beginning. And so yeah, that's another thing. At the beginning, you're like, oh, of course, it's going to be Slappy. He's the first one introduced. And then this other dummy, Mr. Wood, shows up and then he ends up kind of being at center stage. And like I said, at the end, Slappy is the the main one. And I'm looking now, there's... There's three Night of the Living Dummies. There's a Bride of the Living Dummy. There's Slappy's Nightmare, Revenge of the Living Dummy. He appears in some others. And then Son of Slappy is the the most recent one. So it is interesting that this book is, like you said, on so many lists of kind of the top Goosebumps books for launching this character. But the character is really sort of ancillary to the, the main going on in the book until the very, very end. Yeah, because for the vast majority of this book, Slappy seems like a fine guy. Mm-hmm. Right. He's, like, he's not hurting anything, not hurting anybody. And I actually, as I sort of put all of my notes together and made sure that I was ready to go for our recording tonight, I found myself having to like confirm. I was like, am I sure that all of this is Mr. Wood? Because I mm-hmm. thought back to Slappy being like the main event in all of these articles that I read. And I, and I had to sort of skim back through all my annotations in the book just to like make sure that Slappy was not the one causing all of the trouble. So I thought that that was interesting, um, but it is quite a cliffhanger. And I, I think that if I, if I put myself in the position of being a kid who loved Goosebumps and I finished this book, I would immediately need to get the second one. And of course, when you were a kid in the 90s, sometimes you had to wait. You had to wait until the next Scholastic Book Fair to get the next installment. That was the the worst, the yeah. worst having to wait. Though I I will say I don't I don't know if this taints the view on it. the the movie the the next book does not have Chris and Lindy. It is not about them. So despite Slappy coming to life, it is not then following them. It's it's Slappy with other people, and that's kind of the thing. Every time Slappy shows up, it's new people encountering this dummy 
I can't tell if I if I think that I I mean Chris and Lindy were so exhausting. And they were, yes. And yet how does Slappy find his way to other people to torment? Like I'm just not sure. There's a lot of like I have a lot of questions. RL Stein, you have a lot of things to answer for. Give us a call. We have some questions. I actually got to hear him speak once and it was really interesting and I'll never forget it. It was when I was working in publishing and he did like a lunch, he was at the office and he, you know, did like a lunchtime talk. And I think I mentioned this on the first Goosebumps episode, but I'll repeat it again. One of the things that he um, really emphasized was that he never had any intention of writing scary books. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget his exact quote was, I never wanted to be scary. I always wanted to be funny. Comedy was really his number one love. And I think he actually got his star writing jokes and writing comedic pieces for newspapers. And this was sort of just like a thing that he naturally found his way into. And so when he talks about his work, he he thinks about it much more in terms of the way that he's making kids laugh than he does in terms of scaring them. Yeah, I've heard that about him as well. And what's so funny is if you look at him, you wouldn't think oh, this is the guy that's writing horror. Like you see Stephen King. Yeah. Stephen King has a look about him where you're like, yeah, that's Stephen King. You see you see R.L. Stein, and you're like, that guy who probably works at a used bookstore? Yeah. When I walked into this like speaking event and I saw him, I was like, mm, is that – And I, he's I'm, – I'm not a tall person. I'm 5'2". He's about my height, and um, he's just – I don't know. I like pictured him being this like big sort of like tough guy – um, and he was just like a very sort of mild-mannered, funny writer type. Uh, yeah. So you never know. You you cannot judge a writer by the books they write or your assumptions about them. It's true. It's funny him wanting to to write comedy because there was a moment in this book that made me laugh and, and I wanted to point it out. And it's early on um, when the family is like preparing dinner uh, and Mr. Powell is cutting up an onion and he says, there's a trick to not crying when you peel an onion, Mr. Pal said, tears rolling down his cheeks. Wish I knew it. <laughs> that is fun. It was, yeah, it was really well, like, that's like, that's a great book joke. That's like a good book dad joke. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. It's a very specific kind of dad joke. No, I like that too. Um, and I think speaks to the kind of writing that maybe R.L. Stein envisioned himself doing before he found his way down this interesting goosebumps Rabbit hole. So on the whole, um, did you find that your experience rereading Goosebumps Night of the Living Dummy as an adult held up to your memories of these books from when you read them as a kid? Or did you feel let down in some way? I mean, I was aware the whole time that this was a kid's book. And I could see being a kid enjoying this, you know, they're, they're very easy reads. Like we talked about, the kids are kind of in the driver's seat of everything. I don't think I was disappointed. But I definitely walked away being like, yeah, I'm an adult now. And this book isn't, isn't meant for me. And this yeah. series isn't meant for me. I, I didn't walk away from it in a way that we both kind of did uh, on Hit Me One More Time with Mr. Popper's Penguins, where it's like, I wouldn't really let my kids read that. I mean, I guess if they picked it up, whatever, that's fine. But I could see myself, if my kids showed an interest in this kind of stuff, being like, oh, yeah, here's here's some Goosebumps books. I want you to check them out. If you're interested in reading, you might have a, a good time with this. So as an adult, like, no, I was fine because I'm, I'm 30 now. It's, a, it's totally hitting me different, but I don't feel any less about Goosebumps now than I did before reading this. 
Yeah, I also think that it's like so iconic that you sort of it's if I think if I had kids that wanted to read it, I'd be like experience this because I didn't experience it when I was a kid and it seems to have been a big deal. Um, so I hope you enjoy. Other than Goosebumps, Night of the Living Dummy, have you been reading anything lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It most certainly does not have to be a book meant for children. I, I will, I'm going to mention one real quick because he's a, a friend of mine. He's a great author. Um, J.F. Dubow is his name. He wrote a book that, uh, he's written a couple of books. One is God in the Shed and the other is uh, The Life Engineered. And I recently just read The Life Engineered. It's a quick read. It is a sci-fi book. It talks a little bit about humanity, uh, as all good sci-fi books, I think, do in a very interesting far future setting. So people should check that out. Another thing, the other thing I'm reading is, uh, I read this a bit as a teenager, and I'm digging back into it now, is The Amber Chronicles, which by Roger Zelazny. It's a 10-book series. I've never read the whole thing, so I really made it a point for myself to read it, um, and I'm most way through. I've, I've just got a couple of books left. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, why has nobody adapted this into something yet? I think it's a really interesting fantasy series that happens to be original in a way that fantasy doesn't get to be very often. It's a really interesting take on the, the multiverse. So if anybody out there is interested in fantasy, and it's not fantasy in the sense of like knights and dragons and stuff like that, but it it's really good. Um, if, if you're interested in fantasy and have not ever heard of the Amber Chronicles or the Amber books, the first one is the Nine Princes of Amber. Go, go check those out. You can get the big book of Amber, which is what I have, which is all 10 books in one giant tome. Uh, great for airplane, airplane reading. So... <laughs> That'll impress anybody who you're sitting next to, I'm plus, sure. Plus, if anybody tries to break into your house uh, and you have it on your nightstand, it makes a really handy projectile. I think it could probably um, make a nice dent in a ventriloquist dummy come to life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, those sound like great recommendations. I will include links to them in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to the Goosebumps book that we just discussed. And of course, I will link to your podcast. David, hit me one more time. Do you want to share a little bit about what you and Nick do on your show? Yeah, it's very similar to this. Uh, it's just I bill it as a nostalgia reflection podcast where we look at the things that we loved when we were younger and we ask the question, is this good? Uh, sometimes yes. Other times, no, not at all. So if you're curious if that thing that you loved when you were younger is still good, check out our catalog. Feel free to write into us and suggest stuff. We'd be happy to have those suggestions. There's really no one place I say you should start find something that you'd be interested in hearing us break down as adults to see if it's any good now and to listen to that. Yeah, it's very similar to SSR and you do um, a greater variety of different types of pop culture, which I think is really fun. So listeners, I would encourage you to go check out the show. I genuinely had the most wonderful time talking about a book with you both. So I really think that we have a lot of overlap in terms of our listeners. So please go check out Hit Me One More Time, my SSR family. I think you're going to love it. David, thank you so much for taking the time to reread this book with me and to talk about it with me tonight. I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thank you for having me on. This was great. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk.
Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>